Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and I am a dragon. And my guest this week is a dragon as well, which means... It ain't our year, because it's the Chinese New Year of the monkey, just started a couple of days ago, and it provided the perfect excuse for us to do something we should have done long ago, which is head to the heart of the West End, to Chinatown. Have your red pockets at the ready. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone through from your front door. seated at a table in a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. All that's missing really is the food. We have everything else we could possibly want, including a cultural ambassador for Chinatown, Jeff Leon. Hi. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I gather food is on the way. Yes, indeed. Food is always on the way. And <laughs> it is always a waiting process. And you're never content until your tummy is full of delicious Chinese. We are in Chinatown will not have escaped your attention listener that there are things afoot in Chinatown at the moment there's change of several different sorts we'll come to that in just a second actually but for anyone who is familiar with London even for those outside of London it'll probably be useful to get a sense of the scope of Chinatown well this is incredible uh, it's pretty much you could say the, the largest Chinatown outside well outside uh, China and I've always referenced it now as the European gateway to the east to the far east over the years, a lot of people misunderstand Chinatown, but it's one of the most incredible experiences coming through. Um, I record pushing my daughter, who was four years old at the time, uh, pushing through the streets of Jarrah Street, and she looked around and go, wow, it's all these other Chinese people. And she realised that, actually, that is not the only Chinese person in, uh, in West End. And it's incredible. You have now um, sandwiched in between the heart of West End. A lot of people remember there's a Chinatown there. But whatever you remember, Chinatown, in your history of five, ten years ago, it's no longer what it is. Chinatown has completely changed. 
And what's your involvement in all of this? Why are you a cultural ambassador? Well, I, I've always loved supporting the arts, whether it's the fashion, film uh, industry, and a lot of different things. For example, we um, started this journey about four years ago when when I've known many various artists in London, whether they are emerging artists to very established and successful YBA artists. And I realised that Chinatown, they, they, because of the pedestrianisation during the festival, which is uh, happening again this weekend on the 14th, how incredible. The, there's no cars, no traffic. So I thought, hold on a second, then there's opportunity to do something. And this is really incredible space, which is the Chinatown car park, Q Park, which we turned into a one-day art exhibition for, for hundreds of international artists. And I call out to them say, this is a space to use. It's not being utilised because the streets are close to cars. And let's do something. And this is just one of the many culture activities I do. But it's also important to understand the journey of myself as being Chinese from Hong Kong. Uh, lots of people see us as, oh, you look Chinese. Yeah, we're different. And also what we eat are very different. And that becomes an interesting talking point. So let's start from the journey. So for some of our family founded the Zen restaurants. For those who are based in London, remember they were in the prime areas of Hampstead, Chelsea, Mayfair. It's very much the minimalism of the then Rick Mather, the architect who designed this very, very glamorous fine dining scene. And of course then, every one of you, probably most of the listener that eat Chinese, have pretty much realised Chinese from one region alone. That is pretty much Canton or Hong Kong, because this is the time before China opened up. And now China's opened it. It's not because China was closed off. It's because all those from Hong Kong came over here, many of them from southern China, from Canton. And you're eating Cantonese food, so the simple... So, so this is the, the stuff that we'd be getting in little provincial towns in the 70s and 80s. This is Cantonese. It's, yeah, so Cantonese has always been the main thrust of the Chinese cuisine. So when you're looking at the crispy duck, um, the, the incredible dim sum, which is now very, very popular, all the way through to a lot of the uh, quick fry, fresh woks fry to the sea bass, a steamed sea bass with a touch of ginger, garlic and a dash of soya. But what was incredible is China's changed because China's opened up and China is the size of Europe. And you don't expect European countries all serve the same food. Likewise, because China now represents so many different regions, so many different, uh, in terms of ethnic uh, interest, you have the Irukbek from part of the Western Front to the Dongbei to the Northeast. These are all different parts of China, all have their own traditions going back 4,000 years. And now when people come over, from their region to London, they go, I eat my own home cooking, and this is Cantonese food. What is it? Well, no, that's interesting, the European comparison, because within Europe, we've got a very specific idea of what French food represents, as distinct from probably what British food represents. Very different stories. Within China, I would imagine that there is a view of what Cantonese food might represent. But within the London Chinese community, with Cantonese food having been out there for this long, how is it regarded? Is it passe and, and boring? Well, I think probably 10 years ago, a lot of people probably got bored and got tired of, of a lot of genre of Chinese cuisine, meaning the Cantonese food. And I, I don't necessarily blame uh, those who don't understand Chinese food. Is that that's what you've been introduced. And I think when people go and eat Chinese food, it's not, oh, you go there, open mind. You go to a European restaurant thinking, mm, what shall I eat? Let's look at the menu. And you have these dishes. But for Chinese cuisine, what draws you to go to Chinese cuisine, I've always explained is, oh, you miss eating crispy duck and that sweet and sour pork dish. is isn't because um, that was something that was very exotic at the time. It was that is what you recognize as Chinese cuisine. So when people invite you out for Chinese or, or introduce you, you remember the listeners who have eaten their first Chinese meal, that's what you eat so therefore when you think of eating Chinese it's not thinking eating Chinese as a category 
those dishes that you go, oh, I miss my hargao siu mai dumplings. Uh, let's go and eat hargao siu mai. And where can I eat that hargao siu mai? And of course, thanks to a lot of friends from whether it's Anya and others that I've met along the journey, there's a lot of traditional dishes and there's a huge amount of new experimental you could say it's not necessarily fusion in a sense but new recipes being used like here sitting in dumpling legend you have uh, xiaolong bao the soup dumplings been around for centuries but then you also have these uh, incredible dumplings like uh, sea bass and fennel and you have truffle and prawn dumplings what they, they're not you could say uh, uniquely chinese but it's also the whole idea of marco polo coming in and i think this ideas is a very incredible relationship we have and how fun it is to live and work in london and of course last time i think um i had lunch with mark hicks and of course being an old friend i said mark you love your dumplings i said i remember as a child going to boarding school and looking forward to this dumpling on a menu go wow there's dumplings on the menu in school food and came out a lump of dough i go my god and then mark said oh let's do a dumpling together i said what would you like to do so he said well black pudding in a Xiaolong Bao. I said, that's an interesting idea. And that became a story. And we thought, let's experiment, let's taste it. But it's, this is what's incredible about food. It's down to what you understand as Chinese cuisine. And going in open mind and go, right, Chinatown's different now. There's so many different dishes to eat. You can go to a lot of sites and have fabulous time. But you have to go, just like the way you go to a European restaurant, and order something exotic and open mind, eat and enjoy I'm going to have to wrestle the subject off uh, food because uh, otherwise I'm going to start eating the microphone. There are plenty of other facets to Chinese culture, of course, in Chinatown and spreading out from Chinatown. What would you look at as good examples of maybe London-centric Chinese influence? Well, certainly, I think when you walk through Chinatown, what I always say to friends who live around West End or even going to see a theatre, looking just walking along Charlesby Avenue just look like another very typical Georgian Britain uh, street but when you go through Gerard Street or Lyle Street you have a real sense that you've emerged into somewhere like the Far East for the day and a lot of people don't kind of realize what, what do you mean well the smells you see this the street market full of uh, stores showing their lovely vegetables that you don't you don't necessarily see I mean how many of us know what jackfruit and, and durian looks like and, and you don't what, see what do they look like well they're, they're like very spiky uh, massive huge melons that uh, have massive spikes and, and, and there's so many exotic vegetables and I think London's changed um, people now understand Asia more because everyone now do business with China and so if you go to China for business you have to know a thing or two about the culture and I think going through and looking at for example the other day I was walking down Wardour Street and seeing this fabulous new gate, almost like a huge totem, telling the world you have arrived in Chinatown. Mm, yes, what's this new gate all about? Can you describe it for us? Well, gate is always something very prosperous, and, and it's, it's all meaning of luck, and, and it's a great way to engage the community at large. The more importantly is to uh, earmark the London community and the tourism community that London Chinatown is right here. And, and that's what's important about London Chinatown. I mean, you're looking at this incredible street uh, full of incredible Chinese diverse of businesses. And there's plenty of law firm, there's hairdressers, there are lots of cake shops and plenty of fresh sea, uh, in terms of uh, fresh uh, markets selling seafood. I mean, just on the back of Dancy Place, uh, a lot of people don't know this little alleyway. 
And there's, there's, there's fishmongers selling fresh sea bass, fresh razor scallop, fresh lobster in massive tanks. And you're, you're, you're in West End thinking, where can I buy these things? And you wander into your local supermarket, and all they have is all frozen and refrigerated goods. And they don't even know. There's a place you can buy fresh produce in the heart of Chinatown. Well, that does surprise me because my impression, like you say, my first impressions were that the supermarkets here contain a lot of dried and tinned stuff that have probably been exported and spent a long time on a container ship. Yes, indeed. And I think certainly there's the whole balance of keeping things uh, lasting long and hydrated food. It's always very popular in Asia. And it's, it's kind of a story I said about Si Chan cuisine, where there's all these spicy Si Chan dishes come from. And, well, all this dry chili came from South America during the Silk Road. And, of course, of course, um, the, the, the journey of the uh, Western culture, Central China, landlocked regions, the imposter food and a lot of flavours. And for example, here in Dumpling Legend, you, you could taste this um, Sichuan sea bass uh, broth, which is a Sichuan broth. And it's a very classic dish. You're talking about delicious food again. You are, yes, indeed. Because I think a lot of people have to look at Chinatown with the context of food. But I look at it very importantly as the economic wider remit. I mean, what's, of course, talking about economy and China is very important. But just look at Chinatown. Chinatown, you're looking at, in terms of a few streets alone, on average site, a large premises, probably contribute £400,000 a year in business rates. You're looking at streets alone, £40 to £50 million contribute to central government, which is an incredible benefit. And what's really important is now Chinatown is a tourism area and brings such a huge important uh, importance to the capital. There's another part of London that's got a connection with Chinese history, which is over in the East End in the docks, Limehouse. Does that figure in the Chinese historical consciousness here? Do people here still connect with that area in any way, or is that uh, long gone? Well, yes, I, I think certainly uh, many of the those who hear and listen to the uh, illicit wars in, in Far East Asia and the whole aspect of the illegal treaties and those who do a bit of research in opium wars, an incredible colourful journey of both the up-and-down relationship that Britain had with China. But this is a long, long time that's ago. A, that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> but that's a really long time ago. But, of course, um, what's really interesting is that um, I, I've definitely heard a lot of stories about the incredible opium dance and opium... Uh, in terms of what it, it was as a symbol of trade. And it's almost uh, a very, you could say, a powerful symbol. Everyone knows there's this um, drug uh, that exists as a form as opium. But it's, it's also a reference to the negative connotation of, of those who just in terms of chilling out all day and not necessarily doing work. And, and in a way conjure up how these dens that used to exist in the east of London when they were actually um, back then, these workers who were looking for a greener grass to come to England, jumping ship, decide not to work on the boats anymore and decide to be here in London making a trade. And they realised that there was population of Britain who were addicted to the stuff. So it wasn't the, 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 the workers that were perhaps um, themselves enjoying it because they're very hard at work. They're non-stop on the docks loading up the goods. And it's actually, I think some of them saw it as a business opportunity. And I think like with many of these illicit underground uh, business that goes on for hundreds of years, how that has changed that area of East London. And it's, it's an incredible impact to see now looking at the docks, looking at the surrounding space. Wow, what memories of Chinatown that remains. And I remember a while back seeing some of the roads, some of the spaces. There is no Chinatown. It's so sad. Why couldn't there be more than just one Chinatown? Well, I was really wondering about that because, for example, and it's one example among many, if you talk to somebody who's interested in the Jewish history of London, a lot of the Jewish population started out in the East End and gradually migrated to the north of town. But there's still plenty of fond and not-so-fond memories of that part of town and 
people go back and nostalgize over the buildings there and where people used to be. Is there still that connection? Or- I, I think that a lot of the generation I spoke to, because Chinatown goes through a lot of different phases, uh, it's very rare that you now probably see any generation that remained from that part of the docks who lived through the years and now they're the generation, maybe three, four generation that their family used to be in docks. I, I think certainly probably do exist and I think I do, I've heard many of our stories and I think almost like referencing the Jewish community how many of them, the ethnic community that you see, the Chinese really does stand out because they look very different they probably remember back in the early 18th century they all had a huge long plaits that's down to the waist and they still live a very traditional lifestyle and I, I do remember many of these reference of many of these Chinese etiquette you have to remember it's culturally very very different it's not the way that we as humanity look at everyone around us who've lived through thousands of years of struggle and here we are um, when, you, when you're looking at that culture and, and it's the way that I, I remember one of the interesting stories that our friends have told me is how, for some of the Jewish community, they don't celebrate Christmas and they all look forward to Chinese New Year because it's a time when they can all go out and eat great Chinese food and celebrate as their part of celebration. And you speak to many of the ethnic Jews, whether they're living in America, New York, a lot of that celebration of both the Chinese and many of the ethnic communities uh, continue. Thinking about difference for a moment, because goodness knows we, as a species, like to distinguish ourselves from anybody who's even slightly dissimilar to us. What's been the experience of integration of the Chinese community and the other London communities? Well, I think, uh, yeah, what was really true to um, what you've mentioned is how there's this different level of the Chinese that came over and certainly you mentioned the docks, those who came, struggled um, and, and tried to make a living and you're looking back in the pre, maybe the pre-war, post-war period when yeah, it's open door policies, anyone can come in and out of Britain you stay a few years and uh, you get to have the permanent residence and of course now many of our generation for example is for, for what was important is London or England as a whole is a great place for education so many of the generation you're looking at the leaders of China, the most successful the businesses whether they're politicians or businessmen who can afford to send their kids into education system here are the top five percent of china are sending their children and they're bringing themselves their way of how and the way they lived in china and this is very much the new generation that is added on top of our generation um, many of my generation of friends now having kids and family young children came at a time when of course we were all kids sent to boarding school and we were I was the only Chinese in my boarding school uh, Heath Mountain of course in rugby there was quite a few because one of the governors used to be a Hong Kong governors from rugby so that's a great uh, public relations for the school and I was the only Chinese I record how difficult it was for me to, to try to um, live with everyone because I couldn't speak a word of English and of course uh, now I've learned a few words but how difficult it was to try to communicate your culture, your differences and uh, there's always a lot of stigma, there's always a lot of integration. But uh, I think how, how old are you? Ten, yes, I was 10. But how old are you now? Well, I'm about, uh, you could say, I'm a year of the dragon. So for listeners who well, work out, uh, I'm, I'm kind of the under the 40 year of the dragon. <laughs> uh, that's not such a very long time ago that that lack of understanding was going on. Well, it is. And, and I think if you look at those who are from Hong Kong, and you have to remember Hong Kong that I came from was a very British Hong Kong. It wasn't the Chinese China Hong Kong you look at now where the, the mainstream of the Chinese who go to London 
the mainstream of the Chinese who are shopping there or retail in Hong Kong. Uh, that is what is interest to those who look at the business or commerce or tourism. And the fact that our generation, being Hong Kong British, we have a very westernized values. And those who are coming from China has a very eastern value, a very different value. And I think this is exactly what people look at, the, the, the dynamics. But I always jokingly said to friends, look how important China is for the, you know, the papers. They said it's 70% of the world economy. And I always jokingly said, well, think about all the consumers from China and thanks to all the consumerism it's actually communist China supporting free press well true because all these adverts from all these luxury brands rely on the spending from the consumers in China to support the publication in Western Europe <laughs> and it's an interesting dynamics we know China is spending a lot uh, supporting luxury goods luxury value and I, I've t- I tell the friends why is there this obsession and I tell them this story of because what Hong Kong and Chinese went through you're looking back in the 18th uh, century in, in Hong Kong when the Chinese were treated just as bad as, of course, terrible, they're, they're bad as dogs. And then uh, there's that really, um, yes, we know a lot of period of colonialism that uh, China went through, uh, and especially Hong Kong. It's the West, it's the British that ran Hong Kong with the Scottish. And they did a very successful, really good job. And so many of the Chinese trying to difference themselves would if they become successful they would dress themselves um, looking very western buy western cars western brands to make themselves look upon that look at me i too are very successful and i too are worthy to do business with and that has become ingrained in a society that you go to hong kong no one wears shorts out in hong kong mm. because they all want to look their best attire and it's become part of the way that people perceive perception of dress well and and that triggered on to what i i call this whole aspect of the luxury consumerism of wanting to dress well and now the chinese who are successful they're not going to go let's start on the middle brands and go up they want to fast track to the best everything they want now is what's to perceive as the best and that's what's really interesting so there's that sense of keen aspiration but what else and if ever there were a doomed question this this is it because i'm about to ask a cultural ambassador this question and it is when i look at for example brits abroad in the various places where british people go to live perhaps in their retirement you might think of spain for example you get a sense not only of the British values as they should be and as we like to think of ourselves, but also the fact of what we actually are probably in those places and how we behave and the actual values that we export. So I'm going to ask you, what are the Chinese values, what are the Eastern values that Chinese people are actually bringing here? Well, the, the incredible aspect is, is you see China, what has gone through the last... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 30, 40 years, they pulled over 600 million people out of poverty. It's an incredible achievement. And when you look at other emerging countries, what have they achieved? And of course, without pointing too many fingers, if China can do what they've done, there's no reason why other countries couldn't really have improved. OK, but what is the value that you see that has achieved that in the national mindset? Well, it's the sheer aspect of everybody is so 
tied down to do what they've been told to do in terms of enjoying their work. They study so hard, they wanted to progress, they wanted to achieve education. And just, for example, university in, in China, there's 10 million applicants a year for university places, and there's only 7 million places a year. And, and, and the amount of incredible shifting through the, 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 those who are coming out of China now are very westernized values, not, not those who are coming over here and study, but they're carrying with them the understanding that, yes, China is an incredible country. They've changed so much since the 40s, since the 50s. And what they're looking at is learning from all the West, learning a lot of things that we all kind of, in terms of um, being trial and tested. And now, if you said what is the whole issues surrounding the, the success of Chinese is because if you look at China, what's incredible since the reform uh, back in the 60s and 70s is everything is still state-owned. So if you think about uh, the recent issue about steel, for example, why a lot of British firms have been affected. And, but if you look at China, that steel rod that comes out, the energy they use are state subsidized. The iron ore is state subsidized. The water is state subsidized. But if you're looking at Western values of privatization, for us to go, well, before that even comes out of the factory, everyone who's supplying the energy, the water, the resource to the factory making the steel have already for profit and we understand we live in a very capitalist, very pro-success, and the, the aspect of it is everyone is trying to make the best for their business. And China has somehow managed to become the manufacturer of the world because it's the sheer value of how they can make things at good price. But then I think that this is the interesting debate on minimum wage because for what you get in China, you can go to Starbucks for four, four pounds and have your cappuccino in China, but then for the same four pounds, you can have a feast for family of four in the next door restaurant that's cooked by local because they too have very standard livings. You don't have to feel that you only earn so much per hour and that's how much you get. And you, can, you, you, you look upon this service to go, wow, there's people who are being paid very little for what they do. But that money stretched a long way in China. So I've got a sense of... At the moment, China has this great big engine that's rumbling and getting ever faster and moving up a gear, perhaps. What about, rather than achievement in this somewhat material sense, I guess we've been talking about it, and maybe we're edging into the cultural side of things, but particularly with cuisine, but what about the soul of China and the soul of Chinatown? Where do we find that? Well, the soul of Chinatown is incredible. It's a pure Chinese identity. And for those who don't understand what is what is it like, not regionally, but about you being Chinese. It's almost, I guess, talking to friends, say, are you Welsh, are you Scottish, are you Irish, you're English, are you Great Britain, are you United Kingdom? Yes, give me, give me some of that. What, is, what, what does it mean to be Chinese? And exactly. What does it mean to be Chinese? Being Chinese is almost, I think I've gone through this incredible journey of, of as a youth, Chinese under the British, I feel very westernized. I love the Western, and you enjoy everything. You enjoy how how the you know whether it's a kid drinking milkshake, how, how, how the fast food industry, and then later on to the stage where by now suddenly there's so much more interest about China. People are fascinated about China, and then Hong Kong is this, this small island, and started doing trade with China and become bigger and bigger. And now more and more people reference China. And, but you're looking at a, per, a place where there's a billion people. You look at London, England, there's 60 million people. I mean, it's a very vast volume of people. And you can't get to know everybody. And that is the truth. And one of the interesting things of, of the Chinese identity is, yes, we, we kind of have a lot of the traditions that you say a lot of the British, a lot of the Western don't understand. 
And what is it that is truly to be Chinese? Is it the family union that you always look after and respect the elders? You always really care for your family and care for others. And there's a lot of value that in your heart that, as I recall, being Chinese is how we try to, in terms of looking after many of the family units and being very, very caring, and the thought process that goes into that aspect of family union. And and is you could you know we talk about food. And every Chinese festival, whether it's Chinese New Year, Langton Festival, um, special day to celebration, you have to get your whole family out. I mean, it's very sad. My parents always said to me, you know, Jeffrey, one day when we pass away, remember to call your brother, call your sister, call your uncles, get everybody together. You have to look after that. It's almost like the ancestors of Confucius still ancestor worship them. Forty-six generation later, I could have got it wrong, but. It's incredible. There's this a love of the family unit, and you think about all those who's passed away, and and it's this culture that you think you're not just here for the moment. You've been here, and thanks to all your families before you, and and that's one thing that I've always very sentimental about. And I think me as personally looking around, we always forget that. Wow, look around us. All these people, for us to have as humanity survive world wars, plague, black death, and for us to be here today. We can't forget that. Wow, many of our forefathers have worked so hard. If they weren't successful, or if they were ill, they would have died out that generation a long time ago. And and to look around, whether that's the homeless person on the street, whether that's someone that's achieved and got a sense of of place, they too have gone through just because of the immediate circumstances. So, thinking about then that sense of belonging to the past or be, being so closely connected and respectful of past in the family sense does that make things challenging for somebody who is first or second or maybe even third generation here in england do you feel like you're isolated what are the tensions yes indeed uh, many of the uh, chinese have an incredible story to their home and even though you look at my family immediate circumstances um um, both our grandmother, the family, they were all in the actric, uh, actri- the actresses and in the film business, and and they were all very looked upon. And my grandfather was the only son who had a lot of inheritance from what their business were. And and back in that period, when when you look back, I remember uh, as a children, um, my grandfather had this huge house in in where this Repose Bay Road and a house in Kennedy Road, and have a lot of servants and helpers. But whatever it was, the the family was always the head of the unit and the grandmother were the boss everybody has to get approval and it's almost that that story i've said is um what everyone needs to seek approval if you give your maid a red pocket money of you know give her some tips like buy some sweets the maid would go to her boss and so um uh, madame boss um, um uncle fifth uncle like the fifth youngest of it uh, gave me a uh, envelope of, of 50 pounds as a gift can i accept that everyone needs to seek approval even to the point that when i wanted to marry um my wife and I, uh, even a few of my uncles who were already married uh, western uh, kind of families and they were asking approval and i said to my grandma can i uh, i want to marry my um, wife she's a doctor and I'd like to marry her. And my grandma was saying, uh, yes, wish you all the happiness, but I would disinherit you. And I literally had to have, <laughs> what? And, and I literally have the, uh, 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 three meetings to a point to, to have a talk one-to-one. And what's incredible, this journey that I do share with my friends, is, is what, what this uh, story of disinheritance. And it was only when I met my grandma and said to her, grandma, da-da-da, um, my uncles, you know, of course, they all got married Westerners, and my grandma bought them houses, whether it's in Chelsea and other places. I said, why do you want to disinherit me? And I said, well, 
it's because my grandma was worried about one thing. I said, what is that you were worried? She was worried that I would be humiliated. And I remember looking through, no matter how successful they were, or these pictures or the balls they went to, when they were young, there was no Western face in the parties they go to, in the balls they go to, in the newspaper they read. It's a very divided society back then. Even the most wealthiest and most successful, they are isolated in their group of person, uh, in their profile. It's the same as when I meet many of the successful uh, British families down in Hong Kong. You wouldn't see Chinese in their imagery, uh, the friends. You see them socially. And I, and I, I kind of ask her why you felt I would be humiliated because that concept did not exist. I went to boarding school. I understand there are kids who are a bit racist and a few kids who say a bit, you know, saying to me, even my good friends uh, for 30 years, I remember him teasing me, Jeff, Jeff, you got jaundice. And I go, what is jaundice? I have no idea what jaundice is. But obviously, you know, there's a bit of wittiness, there's a bit of joke. And I realized it's because that period, they felt so much uh, repression that the Chinese uh, weren't allowed to do what they wanted to do. And that probably ingrained into them. Now, I kind of felt that uh, certainly the culture identity of those who live in Hong Kong, you have that really interesting link between those who keep the Chinese tradition, but yet they want to have short hair. And, and, and how my grandfather, when he was young, he had short hair and glasses, when everyone still had plaits and the old, whether it's the lady wearing chen sam, the, the traditional costume or, or the long kind of Chinese dress, there was this whole westernization that really happened. And if you look at China, China happened so much quicker. It wasn't that one minute you could say everyone was wearing very simple and if you look back, wow, how come we just all miss China? How did it all change so quickly? Suddenly, you look at Beijing in the 80s, all bicycle, and now it's all cars. And it's not just cars from China. It's not like looking at Russia when it's all ladders. You're looking at China now, it's all the European cars. They all aspire to buy Western goods and Western design. And kind of go back to the question I say. But then... Uh, this whole story of, of then, we are now in this environment whereby those who have the order haven't got it. You have an incredible um, kind of the pull push. We know all the Chinese that are here, every Chinese who are here, who are in boarding school, who are in school today, they are indeed from the top, you could say the top five, top three percent of those who manage to send their kids overseas. Because we all know it's not cheap to send your school kids into private education. But it's because the Chinese believe the value. If you said they're very, very much in terms of the belief, why are they sending the kids? Because they want to give them the best opportunity. They want to give them the best education. And just look at that. Don't think that the British haven't got good education because the Chinese know what they think is good. And they are sending their kids here. So it's an incredible achievement for Britain to feel they are teaching the next generation, whether you're English, whether you're Chinese, whether you're Japanese. There's this incredible thought process that goes through in the British education system that really helps to free up your mental block to allow you to think for yourself and for myself that's what I can speak on behalf of what my journey has been through and it is an amazing journey and when one thinks about how uh, politically a comparable journey might have worked for somebody in Soviet Union or some of the countries in Eastern Europe that were governed as part of that union and then the wall came down and suddenly capitalism came rushing in for good or ill and you speak to some of those people particularly people who, who lived through that and can remember it clearly and, and some of them still hanker after the days of communism I've always commented on well yes after the Berlin War and the, the Americans and British go oh uh, the Russians have taken stuff off the Germans and so it's theirs now and I go hold on a second all these Eastern European blocs, Romania, all these great countries had their own incredible culture, the kingdom. And the Russians came and took it off. The Cold War happened. No one wanted to make a, make a big scene. And they said, we just took it off all the Germans, and it's theirs now. But we all know that is 
wrong or right is the history book to, to in terms of diverge more into. But what China went through was incredible. I always jokingly said is maybe one day I will win my Nobel Peace Prize by unifying China and Taiwan back to Hong Kong. Because I always jokingly said, well, Hong Kong was given by the Qing Dynasty for 99 years for the Hong Kong Island. But of course, it's the unequal treaties. But then after 99 years, who should it go back to? Hold on a second, where's Qing Dynasty? But then you can start going to, well, after Qing Dynasty, does it go to the nationalists in Taiwan? Or, or who does it go to? But it's incredible in terms of looking at how China has changed. China went through, I think what many people kind of forgot is, now we look at the incredible arts and crafts from China, the porcelain, these beautiful artisans. During the 1850s, when the world were, were obsessed with building dreadnoughts and, and gunships, China said, we had enough of wars. Let's just build beautiful palaces and talk poetry. And they did not invest in arms. And it became a weak nation. They focused on culture. They focused on what they enjoyed. And I think certainly every country goes through this incredible journey. But what we remember to China then was now people are much more appreciative of the past. And it's very true that they, they do, in, in a sense, realize that, wow, China has an incredible depth, an incredible history. And the Chinese themselves are trying to learn as much of that history as they can. But it's not easy. 4,000 years of history. I mean, you only got 365 days in one calendar to, to celebrate. How could you celebrate every single important features of Chinese culture? Well, a way into it, of course, would be to uh, name some names. And, of course, anyone will have come across one Chinese artist. And I think he's the Chinese artist that everybody knows. He might be the only Chinese artist that everybody knows. So this is a great opportunity to name some other names. Who should we be looking at? Well, I think um, the, the Chinese, uh, um, you know, so many of the interesting people to look at, I mean, there's uh, Liang uh, Zofu and many of the uh, incredible aspects of, of what you said, the artist community. Now, the, the interest between arts and China has really become one of the process of what people uh, love to talk about. And I think certainly there's so many incredible artists that uh, have lived and breathed and there are a lot of different parties of people who have their vested interest in supporting artists. And, and I, I always try to reference this because you, you'll realise that um, the journey of, of supporting art, supporting what people have their beliefs, has always been an incredible process. And artists have for many years have allowed the opportunity to express their views. And you, you can see some are more, you can see is it the buzzword of the political aspect of using that issue surrounding them. I mean, you said how funny is that if there was an artist that was locked up in Guantanamo Bay and coming out uh, in the orange jumpsuit, if you made a piece of work out of it, would people go, oh, that is really interesting. We know there's been a lot of problems, and I think the Western world, uh, both the Eastern world, have owned up to a lot of issues. And they are trying to resolve some of the ways we try to combat the many of the topics of choice. And art is an incredible platform to talk and elaborate and I remember um, many of the interests that how, for example, you're looking at the incredible institution in this country. One thing that we all forget is, is how looking at artists. And one thing I really enjoy about the artist community is how generous artists are. And I remember meeting friends like uh, Gavin Turk and talking to people like Trace M and how, how if you're looking at how much works they donate to charities and as a pure gift that enables people to give uh, to auction charity, to help raise money for charity. A lot of people forget that it's an incredible asset that they bring to help many others. And in a way, we need to kind of remove ourselves to look at art as a piece of work. I think, oh, it's a ex very expensive piece of work as a contemporary artist. Is it about the value you want or do you love that subject matter? What does it engage with you? And you know, we aren't shy to look at um, 
if you're looking at um, you know of course the Royal Academy how incredible supporting the the art and if you if you're just looking at the Huawei exhibition what's incredible is that there was not one corporate sponsors wanted to sponsor it and you look back the image oh yes there's no one image it's because some people don't want to upset people and not upsetting people it might be just a safer it's almost like sitting on the bench and I think certainly it, it, this is not about uh, relationship we all have everyone have relationship um, and but you know, it's important to realize that relationship is a is a very cultural dynamic we're all sharing our understanding we all should be entitled to our views to express what we have problems with we challenge politicians we, we challenge people about problems and we all do this as a process and certainly if you said yes who's the brave ones it's aren't the Chinese artists who are holding the English or American passport the brave ones are you could say the ones that are holding the Chinese passport and go well yes they have no in the terms of you know they are really voicing their concern but it's important to understand that art has become an important part of the facade because it influences so much of our culture what you talk about the Chinese ceramics the Chinese calligraphy the Chinese painting things that creep into our culture even our language the Chinese language where did that come from it wasn't invented by computer these are all picturesque these are all part of the culture that we can fast forward 4,000 years ah we are now today but thanks to what thanks to all this incredible achievement both the Britain made both what the British made back in the last 400 years of, of trading with China if it's not for that journey you could say China could be a very different place what if Hong Kong wasn't involved. If the British never went out there, what would China be now? I mean, it could be just incredible if you just think of it that way. Which, if I had any good sense about me, would be where I would end this podcast because it was such a it was such a big statement and a big idea. But like a fool, I've got one tiny, very specific question to ask, which is with the Chinese New Year in the air. You mentioned red pockets earlier on, and for somebody who's not familiar with that, what is a red pocket a red envelope yes i I think certainly um chinese new year is all about uh prosperity it's almost i guess um the western way of the chinese new year countdown yeah have a great happy new year uh to health and the chinese say yeah it's to health but also to wealth they want wealth and health they want actually everything and i think this is in a way i could say it's a bit shameful and bit crass to think about money 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 and, and, and this is what is uh, tradition, is almost as a gift. So anyone that are married, um, they would have a red envelope. And in fact, just like today you mentioned it, I've got my red envelope to no give way. to you've anyone. Got, you've got a pocket full of red envelopes. So if you're not married and you're single, then you say to a married Chinese couple. And then they'll go, here you go. Here's uh, a red envelope. And inside the red envelope is, of course, is, uh, is a money as to symbolize I'm passing my wealth from me to you. So my luck to you. And it's a great symbol gesture. And obviously, it's something that a lot of people don't appreciate. Why would you just give out money? Because sometimes it's a thought that counts. I prefer the present. I don't want you to give a £10 note in a trice red envelope. So it's an incredible story to, to get that red envelope, giving your wealth to someone. And it looks like an expensive business. That's all we have got time for. We've reached the end of our time here from Dumpling Legend Jeff Leong. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.
front 